when you hear that a baby is coming, there's a, a period of waiting. And then there's that sudden excitement as the birth takes place. And after the birth, nothing is the same for the family as their life and activities and everything changes. As we turn in our Bible today to Acts chapter 2, we're going to see where something similar happened. You'll recall there's been a period of waiting. Uh, Jesus had promised that the Holy Spirit was coming, the gift from God the Father. And so they were waiting. And today in Acts chapter 2, we're going to see the sudden excitement as a birth takes place. And then what we're going to see is that nothing is ever the same again for the church and those in it. Back in Acts chapter 1, we saw that after the resurrection of Jesus, he walked the earth appearing to more than 500 witnesses over a period of 40 days. And then he gathered with the 11 disciples who would become the apostles as they were there watching him ascend into heaven. And then he said, right before he left, I want you to go into Jerusalem and wait. We saw that as they waited in Jerusalem, others gathered with them. There were about 120 that were gathered in the upper room, and there has been a a prayer meeting that has been ongoing. And it's been going on for days because as we turn today to Acts chapter 2 and verse 1, it tells us, and when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. Now, the word Pentecost means literally 50th. Pentecost is 50th. 50 what? Well, it's been 50 days. It's been 50 days since the resurrection of Jesus. But Pentecost is found in the Bible before the birth of the church. We find it uh, where it's sometimes called the Feast of Weeks because it followed the, the first fruits, the Feast of First Fruits. They would, they would count seven weeks. It was literally the, the week of weeks. As you read in Leviticus twenty three fifteen through 16, it says, You shall also count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, that's a Saturday, From the day when you brought in the sheaf of the wave offering, there shall be seven complete Sabbaths. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a new grain offering to the Lord. What they're told is to find the Sabbath, the Saturday on which the Passover was closest. And then they were to count seven Sabbaths, or what we would say are 49 days. And then they were to add one. And on this 50th day, which would be a Sunday, it would be Pentecost. We gather, most Christians gather around the world on a Sunday, not a Saturday, to worship. And there's a couple reasons. One is that that was the day that the the Lord was raised from the dead. That's the day of the resurrection. As we're going to see today, it's also the birthday of the church. Now, before the birthday of the church occurred, uh, Pentecost was still very significant. This was the day the Jews would, would celebrate. They would gather and celebrate the giving of the law that happened on Mount Sinai. It was one of three mandatory feasts every year where Jewish men were required to go to the temple. And as they came, we saw they were to bring a, a, an offering. In verses 9 through 11, we're going to see that there are Jews in Jerusalem from all over the known world. And the reason they're there is because this is one of these mandatory feasts where where Jewish men would come from all over the world and they would gather. And as they came, Leviticus 23, 16 said they brought a new grain offering to the Lord. This was a praise offering. Pentecost was a time of celebration, a celebration of the feast that had been taking, of the uh, harvest that had been taking place. The barley harvest was already completed. The beginning of the wheat harvest was in play. So this was a time when people's barns were full. They had a lot of resources as they had been selling their grain. It was a celebratory time. And they would bring this praise offering into the temple. Now, as they brought these first fruit offerings in, we're told in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty about another first fruit. 
It says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. And so Jesus Christ is the first to be resurrected with that, that resurrection body that would never again perish. Remember, others had been brought back from the dead before. Jesus had brought back Lazarus himself. But Christ is called the first fruits because he is the first one to receive his permanent uh, resurrection body. And we see there are other first fruits that will come in here at Pentecost because we're going to see later in this chapter that 3,000 were brought to the Lord on, uh, after the preaching of Peter in Acts 2.41. Now, before we get to that, let's look at what's happening here in Acts 2, verses 2 through 4. It says, And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as if fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now, the Holy Spirit is not something that we see, but we see that he came here through sight, sound, and spiritual gifts. You'll recall when Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit was seen as he descended uh, like a dove. And you heard the voice from heaven where God said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. So the Holy Spirit, as he comes in, he's not something that we can see, but God manifests him in various ways. Uh, when it turns, when, when we see that he's, he's described as being a wind here, wind is a sign of God's spirit. It's rooted li- linguistically. In the Old Testament, ruah is the Hebrew word that, that means wind, spirit, or breath. And then pneuma is the Greek word in the New Testament that speaks of him. Again, this meaning of wind, spirit, or breath. And depending upon the context, it's translated different ways. But here we see the Holy Spirit comes in like a wind. Now, it wasn't a, a literal wind that blew people over. Maybe you've seen these, these scenes on TV where somebody's slayed in the Spirit and, it's, and they, they kind of, and this wind is supposed to knock everybody over. But that's not what happens here. You read where it says a sound of a wind. It doesn't say they felt a wind. The Greek word used here is akos. We get our English word echo from it. And it's this sound that literally echoed throughout the city. You can picture the, the sound of a hurricane or a tornado if you've ever heard that. There's this mighty, violent, rushing wind noise. Now, the purpose of it was to draw people's attention. You see there in Acts 2.6 that it, it tells us, And when the sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak with the, in his own tongue. Now, when it says the crowd rushes uh, to this place, there's, there's a debate about where it is. And people question how many were actually there. Remember, Luke was telling us about the prayer meeting in Acts chapter 1. But then we jump ahead 10 days later to this, this coming of the Holy Spirit. And we're not given a whole lot of details. Were the full 120 still there? Was it just the apostles? Uh, well, we know that it, was, it would have been more than the 11 apostles that had added the number, so they were 12, because later we're going to see there were 15 different languages that are being spoken. And so there's, there's more than the 12, but how many are there, we don't know. And we don't know, are they still up in the upper room? Because when we see the word house there, uh, it's the same word that is used later in Acts 7.47 to speak of the temple. There it says King Solomon built a house for God. So they were meeting in the upper room, and at one point, we know they were in the temple courtyards. They were going for worship and various things there. And so have they moved out of the upper room into the temple courtyards? We don't know fully. 
but the focus isn't where they are, it's on what's happening. And, and so the Holy Spirit comes, and a crowd comes together. They're drawn by this noise. And as, as they come, it says that they see the coming of the Holy Spirit. They've, they've heard this noise, and they see his presence, it says, through what appeared to them as tongues of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. So you can, you can picture this, some kind of uh, fire is falling from heaven and it splits apart and, it, and it's touching each one of the believers that are there. Now, fire, again, is something that's seen throughout the Old Testament to signify God's presence. We find that in the, the fire of the burning bush when he spoke to Moses. It's in the pillar of fire in the wilderness as he led his people. God was the consuming fire on Mount Sinai as well as the fire hovering over the tabernacle. John the Baptist said in Matthew 3.11 and in Luke 3.16 that Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And so... As the Holy Spirit comes, Luke says, these tongues of fire separated and came to rest on each believer. Now, the fact that the the Holy Spirit is resting on all of the believers present was something very unique. Up until that point, the Holy Spirit would come to an individual. And for a temporary period of time, he would rest on a prophet or on a king Uh, It was a special anointing for a short season or a special appointment, and then the Holy Spirit could be withdrawn. But here we see every single believer is is given this. I told you earlier there are more than the, the 12 apostles that are speaking as 15 different languages are listed there in verses 9 through 11. Now, in terms of the change in what is happening here, we can go back to Ephesians 1, 9 through 10. Because in Ephesians, it tells us God made known to us the mystery of his will with a view to an administration. We're going to talk about this word in a moment. A view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things upon the earth in him. You see, what it's telling us is God operates in different ways at different times. And when you see that word uh, administration, if you have a King James Version of the Bible, you'll see where it's translated as dispensation. A dispensation comes from this Greek word oikonomia. And if that word oikonomia sounds familiar to you, it's because it's where we get our English word economy. So when it speaks of the, the working of God, it's a different economy in our terms. This means to divide, to apportion, or to administer. It was used to describe one who managed the affairs of an inhabited house. In our day, we would talk about a steward, a treasurer, a manager, uh, would be the individual who is the administrator. So when it comes to our world, we can think of it as God running it and ordering it in, in, in a new way. Maybe this will help you understand what we're talking about. If you've ever driven down the, the road and you've seen one of these signs under new management, what does that tell you? Does it say that the dress shop is now going to be a tire shop? Or does it mean that the, the coffee shop is going to become an oil and lube place? No. What it's telling you is it's still the same store selling the same product, but they want you to know that there's going to be a change. When you come into the establishment, you're going to be treated differently is what they're hoping you uh, to believe, that there is going to be a difference in the type and quality of service that you receive. So when it comes to dispensations, it's not saying that God is changing the way he works in terms of salvation. 
Uh, one of the mistaken beliefs about dispensationalism is that people say, well, it, it means that God has a different method of salvation. Like in the Old Testament, under the dispensation of law, uh, you could earn your way into heaven through the law. But the Bible says that was never the case. From the very beginning, God's plan, his administration, overall master plan of the world, was that he would send his son, Jesus. Read Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis 3, all the way at the very beginning, he says that there would be a Savior who would come who would crush the head of the serpent and the serpent would bruise the heel of the Savior. Speaking of the crucifixion of Christ where Satan thought he had, he had killed and ended God's plan, God says, this has always been my plan. God's plan for salvation for all, the world and for us today has always been the same. It's through faith alone in the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. What has changed is how God deals with mankind in this store or household called earth. Now, remember that God's plan has been unfolding throughout human history. In Ephesians, he said God operates in different ways at different times. The word he uses there for time is kairos. Kairos means an epoch or an age. There's another Greek word, chronos, which speaks of like ticks on a clock or maybe pages in a daytimer. But a chronos speaks of a uh, significant period of time where God operates in a unique and different way. In terms of uh, coming back to what we see about the Holy Spirit, he's operating in a new way here. Uh, what, what he's doing now is not only are all believers receiving the Holy Spirit, and remember the reason for that is the empowerment to share the good news of the gospel, that commission God gave in Acts 1-8 for you and I today. God has empowered us in the present time with the Holy Spirit. Now, another way God was at work is that the Spirit would not just come upon people temporarily, but as I said, it would be a, a, a new way, a permanent, and it would be an indwelling. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, it says, And do you not know that your body is a temple of the Lord, and the Spirit of God indwells you? It says, He doesn't rest upon us. He fills us. He seals us, and He indwells us. Um, when King David sinned with Bathsheba, he prayed in Psalm 51.1, do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. David as the king had been given the gift of the Spirit to lead the nation. And he knew that through his sin, he, he was praying, God, don't withdraw your Spirit from me. As Jesus spoke about the coming of the Holy Spirit, he told us in John 14, verses 16 through 18, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, the Holy Spirit, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. That is, non-believers don't get this. Because it, does, uh, because it does not behold him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. You remember that as Jesus was ascending into heaven in Acts 1-9, he said, I have to leave. The Holy Spirit will come when I leave. He says, I'm not leaving you alone. God hasn't left us alone today. We have the gift of God's indwelling within us. Now, the proof of the Spirit's presence in us, we see in Acts 2-4, it says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterances. Now, when I say the, the proof of the Spirit here, this is where there's a problem uh, in our day. Some of you have possibly heard somebody say to you, have you received the second blessing? 
referring to, have you spoken in tongues? And some will say to you, well, if you haven't spoken in tongues, you are not saved. I can't tell you how many times I've been told I'm not yet saved because I haven't spoken in tongues. I've had people lay their hands on me and try to impart the gift of tongues. I've had people tell me, say, I tie, you tie, we all tie a bow tie, and do that really fast over and over. It's like priming a pump and the Holy Spirit will just take over. And I go, God doesn't need me to prime the pump. Uh, God didn't prime the pump here. He didn't say, you guys kind of start speaking gibberish and I'll take over. <laughs> and, and so what happens here is what I want to remind you is those who spoke in tongues were already believers. They've already come to faith. Remember, we saw as they gathered in the upper room, the brothers of Jesus who hadn't believed in him before were now there as believers. Everybody was already saved. And what is happening here, the purpose of tongues that is happening is, is not to uh, save these individuals, but it's a sign. Another passage in the Bible that speaks about tongues is in 1 Corinthians 14, through 23. It says, so then tongues are for a sign. Now look at this. A sign not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. If therefore the whole church should assemble together and all speak in tongues, and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say, you're crazy? You're mad? Have you ever seen these things where it's happening and people go, I don't know what's happening? Well, what we're going to see in a moment is here in Acts, they don't say, you guys are crazy. What they say is, these guys are drunk. I mean, look at them. Look at what's happening. And so what God tells us is signs are not for, tongues are not a sign for those who believe. What, what is happening here with the baptism of the Holy Spirit is it is a sign. But it's a sign that God is working in a new way in this new entity called the church. We're going to see two other occasions in the book of Acts where the Holy Spirit falls upon a gathered group and they begin to speak in tongues. One of those is in Acts 8.17. And there it's when the Samaritan believers received the Holy Spirit. Now, remember, Samaritans were hated. They were these half-breeds, half-Jewish, half-Gentile. And so the, Jew, the Jewish believers, the circumcised believers, who had become uh, the first believers in the Messiah, Jesus, they were going, whoa, the Samaritans are, are, are joining the church. Well, they were partially Jewish, so okay. Well, later in Acts 10.45, it's going to blow their minds. Acts 10.45 tells us all the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. They go, now, wait a minute. The Gentiles, non-Jews, are now in the church. We saw last week that the church was going to be a radically new community. Remember, there were men and women worshiping together, something that in Jewish synagogues before they had been separated. Well, now Samaritans are a part of the community, and even Gentiles have come in, and God says, I'm giving a sign to show that, yes, indeed, they are part of this new community. Now, on this slide, you see a, a stained glass window. I had the wonderful opportunity to be here uh, in St. Chapelle this summer. This is over in Paris, France. And if you've ever been in that church, it is just, 
usually it's crowded, it's wall-to-wall people, but as you're in there, you, you see the beauty of these windows. This church was built around 1200s, and as you go in, uh, the way that they would tell the story in that day, people didn't have the Bible available to everybody. They would tell the story of the Bible and the church through stained glass windows. People could come in and they could, they could look at the pictures and they could follow the gospel story. They could see uh, the story of how God had been at work and what he was doing in the church. And I think this gives us a, a beautiful picture of what the church should look like. Uh, I think that colorful churches, in the sense where there are, there are different ages and ethnicities and backgrounds, make more beautiful windows. You know, I've got a lot of windows in my house at home, but they're just plain. They're just one color. They're clear. And as you look at the diversity of color, that's what makes this so stunning and so beautiful. And I think as the world looks in at a church and they see the the colorful church window, so to speak, the diversity of the body gathering, it it stands as a testimony to the world. We, We see in our society today where people are dividing over the issue of race. And people are at war with each other over, over the difference in the way we look. And what God says is, as the church was coming together, they were different. There were men and women. There were Samaritans and Jews. There were Gentiles. And as the world was getting a picture of this new community coming together, it stood as a testimony. In 1 Corinthians twelve 13, we're told, For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we are all made to drink of one spirit. Today, we all have the Holy Spirit within us, those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ. God doesn't say only certain people get this gift. Now, if you keep reading there in that chapter, it says in 1 Corinthians twelve thirty, all do not speak with tongues, do they? So again, if you have somebody who says to you, well, if you're really saved... You're going to speak in tongues. Well, the Bible says very clearly, we've all been baptized into one body. We all have the Spirit. But then he goes on to say, not everybody will speak in tongues. So if somebody tells you that you're not saved because you haven't spoken in tongues, listen to what God's Word says, not what they're saying. And in terms of what tongues are, um, again, you've, you've probably seen on TV or maybe personally in a, in a worship service where some have been speaking in tongues. And as you're among them, there's all this different kind of gibberish going on around you, and you're going, what is going on? When the people here are seeing the tongues being spoken, it's not gibberish. Uh, what it tells us is, the literal translation is in other languages, heteros glossias, glossia tongues, other, in other tongues is what it says. Now it speaks specifically of the type of tongues. It uses the Greek word dialectos. We get our English word dialect from it. The dialect here is a known or a living language. For example, I could say to you this morning, uh, and you're going, are you speaking in tongues? Well, yeah, I'm speaking in tongues. Somebody here may be a Russian speaker, and you're thinking, well, I want to tell you, very well. You see, what I did was I greeted you in the Russian language and asked, how are you doing? And it's not that I suddenly was gifted by the Holy Spirit and, and received this gift of a dialect, another tongue. I've just been overseas into Russia and Ukraine and other parts of the former CIS enough times to pick up uh, some of the Russian language. 
But if I go over there, when I go to teach or preach, I don't go and suddenly just start opening God's word in the Russian language because what I'd end up doing is telling them you have a chicken on your head. I'm not, I'm not good enough in Russian to, to teach or to preach without a translator. Now, if while I was over there, God suddenly allowed me to speak in perfect, flawless Russian, uh, that would be the gift of tongues. That would be a supernatural giving of the gift of tongues. Uh, but that's not what... what happens when you see these people who say, well, I tie, you tie, we all tie our bow tie. I mean, they're not speaking in a known dialect, in a known language. Um, What we see here is that they were, it says the people from these different nations were hearing praises given to God, what? In their own languages. And and they recognize this is a supernatural event. Look at Acts 2, 5 through 7. It says, now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together. That's that rushing wind. So they're all drawn saying, what, what, you know, what's happening? You ever heard there's a tornado in your area? And, and what do some people do? They run outside. Where, where is it? You know, instead of hunkering down. And this is what happens. They hear this noise and, and they run to see it. And it says the multitude came together and they were bewildered because they were each one hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and marveled, saying, why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Galileans. The first church I had the privilege of pastoring was over in East Texas. And it was a, a farming, ranching community, and I, and I love the people there. It was a wonderful uh, time of ministry. But what I found at times is some of the individuals in that area were hard to understand. If you hadn't grown up in that community, it was hard to understand. For instance, one day we were at one of the men's ranches, and we had had a Sunday school gathering. So we had all these little kids, and they're all running around and petting animals and doing things. And, and I'm, I'm you know, leaning on the fence with the rancher. His name was Jim, and we're talking, and this little boy named Danny comes walking up. And, and he stands there, so, so I look over at him, and, and I said, Hey, Danny, what's going on? And he goes, Lord the fight. And I said, I'm, I'm sorry, Danny, what? He goes, Lord of Fight? And I leaned down again. What? And he goes, Lord of Fight? Well, Jim, the rancher, goes, Fight about war. <laughs> and this little kid smiles and he runs off. And I look at Jim and I said, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't know what y'all just said. What happened? And he said, oh, Danny asked, Where's the feed? Where's the feed? I told him the feed's over by the barbed wire. The feed's over by the barbed wire. Oh, okay, sure. Yeah, I, I got that. You know, when it says the Galileans are speaking, you see, they were, they were considered the backwoods people of the day. They, they couldn't say guttural sounds. They would swallow syllables. Uh, people would say they couldn't even speak their own language. And, and suddenly here they're able to speak perfect French and German and Spanish and Italian. Those are our languages of the day. But in that day, they were speaking these other languages. It, it tells us they were from all over the world. There were 15 different parts of the world. This is the known world that was coming together. This is what it tells us in Acts 2, 8 through 12. And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? 
Parthians and Medes, and on the list goes all the way through verse 11. Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and were in great perplexity saying to one another, what, what does this mean? You see, they didn't know what it meant, but they sure knew it was supernatural. They said, how in the world can these guys be speaking in perfect Russian, so to speak? How, how do they suddenly know our language and that we can understand it? And as you think in terms of the, the supernatural occurrence happening, and again, this idea of dispensations, how God operated in different ways, I want to remind you that in Genesis 11.1, 1, we're told now the whole earth used to use the same language in the same words. If you've ever read through Genesis, you know that there was a time when the entire world spoke one language, one dialect. And what it tells us as you read through Genesis 11 is that the, the people had been told by God to go throughout the earth, to, to populate and spread out the earth. And what happened is there came a point where the people said, you know, we're not going to do what God says. We're going to do what we want. And they gathered together and they said, you know, we're, we're, we're a force to be reckoned with. We're going to build this tower, the Tower of Babel, and we're going to just stay here and we're going to gather and we're going to be so powerful and so great. We're going to raise up our name. And God says, oh, really? You guys think you're in control? You think you know what you're doing? And it says God confounded their language. He said, suddenly you're not all going to speak the same language. And as the people were thrown into confusion, they gathered up in groups. They found people who could speak the language they now spoke, and they scattered into these different groups throughout the world. And as we look at the day of Pentecost, the birth of the church, it's designed to remove the barrier and give God glory. You see, men were saying, we're going to make our name great. And God says, at this point, my name will be praised. My name will be the one that receives glory. And he, and, and he says, you're going to go throughout all the world in Acts 1.8, and you're going to spread the gospel first in Jerusalem, and then Judea and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. So this is what's happening. Now, I want you to remember that the religious leaders, the religious leaders were those who tried to stop God's work. They, they tried to kill Jesus the Messiah. And it looked for a moment like everything was over, but it, it was really just a parenthesis, dot, 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 as you see on the screen. God says there's just a little pause here for a moment. Because while they think they've won, whether it was Satan who thought he killed the Messiah and the plan was done, or the religious leaders who said, okay, we got rid of this guy named Jesus and now the church is going to fall apart. What God said is this is just the opening parentheses for what is coming. He has a plan and he's working his plan. Now, we see how they try to derail the plan as, as suddenly this, this event occurs. Look at verse 13. It says, but others were mocking and saying, they're full of sweet wine. You see, people see this supernatural event, and they're all going, what does it mean? And the religious leaders are there in the temple, and they're going, oh, listen, <laughs> these guys are just drunk. You know, sweet wine was a new uh, wine. It's like saying, well, they've all been at the liquor store, got some ripple. They're just, you know, they're a little tipsy. That, that's what's happening here. You know, when I was a cop, I saw a lot of drunk people, and they do babble, but they don't babble in perfect languages they don't know. In fact, they don't make any sense. And, and so Peter, uh, as you look at Peter's sermon that begins there in Acts 2.14 and 15, it says, but Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, here he's in the temple, 
Taking his stand with the eleven, he raised his voice and he declared to them, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. Now we go, third hour, what's Peter saying? Well, what Peter's saying is, hey guys, it's, it's, it's only 9 a.m. These, these guys aren't drunk at 9 in the morning. Now you're saying, yeah, but Roger, I've seen drunk people at 9 in the morning. Yeah, so have I. But remember, the context is the Feast of Pentecost. And during feast days, people would abstain from eating and drinking till at least 10 a.m., many times till noon. So Peter says, nobody's been drinking. Nobody's drunk. And what you see happening is not them being controlled by alcohol. Rather, they're they're being controlled by the Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us, do not be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. It says, don't get drunk and be controlled by some substance. Rather, you're to be controlled by the Holy Spirit that is resident within you. So Peter uh, corrects this mistake, and then he goes on and tells them what they're seeing is the fulfillment of the Scriptures. Look at verses 16 through 18. This is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my Spirit upon all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even upon my bond slaves, both men and women. I will in those days pour forth uh, of my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. This is from Joel 2:28 through 32. This prophecy was spoken back in 835 B.C., And what he's saying is, this is the beginning of what God said would happen. Um, In recent sermons, we've walked through uh, this chart, and we're not going to go back into this today. But you'll recall there are different epochs, ages, things that are going to come, like uh, that millennial kingdom, the eternal state. All these things are yet to come. These are new ways God will operate. And as Peter is preaching here, he says he's pointing to things that the the prophet Joel reveals will happen in the last days. So it's the opening of what's coming. But at this point, where we are on this chart and in God's plan is right here at Pentecost. The beginning of what is called the church age, this age of grace where God says, I'm establishing a new entity called the church and what Peter is doing is inviting all those who hear to be a part of the church. He's inviting them to become a part of the family of God. In Acts 2.21, he says, And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, I want you to notice in that verse, it says that those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's not telling you that baptism will save you. And I mention that because we're not going to have time to go into verse 38 today. So in case you're not here next week, when we go into depth about what is this about baptism and salvation, we're going to cover that next time. But I want you to see very clearly, he says that it's not believe and be baptized. You can look further up in Acts 16.30. The question was asked point blank. Sirs, what must we do to be saved? And in verse 31, it says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. Not believe and be baptized. So as Peter is talking here, he goes on to tell them about what God has been at work doing. He says in verses 22 through 24, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man 
delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. He's reviewing the the life and the ministry, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. He goes on in verses 25 through 31, speaking of the resurrection. He does this by quoting from Psalm 16, 8 through 11. For David says of him, I was always beholding the Lord in my presence. For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will abide in hope. Because thou wilt not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow thy Holy One to undergo decay. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou wilt make me full of gladness with thy presence. Hades refers to the grave. It is the unseen place of the dead. And he says, David, remember, has died. David was not resurrected back. So David is speaking of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. He says, Jesus would not stay in the grave. Death could not hold him. He rose from the dead. Now in Psalm 33, Peter returns to his original point in this passage about the Holy Spirit being poured out. As he says, Jesus left the earth to receive his exalted position at the right hand of God, and then the Spirit came. In verses 34 through 35, Peter gives further evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. Here he quotes from Psalm 110. And then he concludes his message in verse 36 by saying, Therefore... Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And we see that the message hit their heart because in verse 37 it says, they were pierced to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Verse 38, and Peter said to them, repent. And let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The word repent means to have a change of mind that leads to a change of action. It literally means to recognize you're going in the wrong direction and to stop, to turn around and come back in the different direction. They had rejected Jesus. They said he was not the Messiah. Now they recognize, no, he is the Messiah. And Peter says to them, you need to stop, you need to turn around, and you need to come to Christ. You need to receive him as your Lord and Savior. Right now, we're going to be coming to the communion table. And at the communion table, we remember what Jesus Christ did for us. Why Jesus Christ came in the first place. We had a beautiful song just a moment ago, Mary, Did You Know? And and we're asking, Mary, did you really know all of who Jesus was? What would happen with him? Friends, God knew. God from the very beginning had the plan. As you see there in Genesis 3, God said, my son will come. My son will come in order to go to the cross to die, to pay the penalty of death that you and I owe for our sins. God's plan has always been to save us through the gift of his son. During this Christmas season, we celebrate the baby of Bethlehem coming. But friends, the baby of Bethlehem came to be the Christ of Calvary. And as we come to this communion table, we're we're reminded and we're celebrating the fact that God gave us his son. 
that he was willing to leave his throne in heaven to come to earth to take my place and yours, to go to the cross to be that payment, that payment for my sin and yours. Romans says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you're here today and you've never come to faith in Christ, Peter tells you, repent. God says, there is a way home for you. There is forgiveness for you, and it comes through this table. It comes through what Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, did for us as he would pay that penalty of death that we owed, that we could not pay ourselves. So in a moment, as the men pass the elements, if you've never come to faith in Christ, but today you recognize who he is, the one who died for you, the one who took your place to pay the penalty of death you owe, then take the bread, which represents his body. Take the cup representing his blood and say to Jesus, today, God, I'm turning from my sins and I'm turning to you to be my savior. For the rest of us who have already taken that step of faith in the past, this is a reminder to us of God's work in in miraculous ways on our behalf where he died to save us. And it's a time where we get to say to God, thank you. We remember today what you did for us. I want you just to hold the elements, to think about what God did for you, to take a moment to pray and thank God. If you have sins you need to confess, then do that. Prepare yourself as we celebrate what God has done for us. Men, will you serve us, please?
What we hold in our hand is a, a reminder of the incarnation, of how God left his throne in heaven to come to earth, how he went to that little manger and was born as a helpless baby, how the, the King of kings and the Lord of lords uh, left all his glory not to come to even the palace there in Jerusalem, which would have been such a, a step down from his great glory, but he went even further. He went to the, the place of the poorest peasant family, showing just how much God was willing to humble himself. And the scriptures tell us that he humbled himself to the place of the lowest servant, even unto death, as Philippians tells us. That's how much God loved us. That's what this piece of bread represents for us. God's willingness to stoop down and to, to, to come eye to eye with us, to live in the muck and the mire of the world, to suffer uh, things we can't even imagine, the death that he died, in order to take our place so that we could receive his grace and have a place with him in heaven one day. So as you go through this Christmas season, all the hustle and bustle, as you see all the things that are going to compete for our attention and time, just linger over this moment and think about what God did for you and me. Remember what the real reason for the season is. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, who came, the baby of Bethlehem, to be the Christ of Calvary. Eat this in remembrance of him. And here we hold a cup in our hand. It represents blood that was shed because the book of Hebrews says without the shedding of blood, there could be no forgiveness for sins. And again, we see God's dispensational work in our lives is in the Old Testament. They would bring sacrifices and offerings, not just the praise offering like we saw today, the new grain offering, but they would bring sin and guilt and other offerings. And it's easy for us sometimes to forget just how how costly our sin was. People in that day knew the cost as they had to give the best of their flock, had to bring uh, animals that were, were their livelihood as they would be reproducing or, or providing for the family, and they gave that as a payment for their sins. And so we look at a, a cross, a pretty sterile cross that doesn't remind us of the cost. But those in the first century knew those who went to the temple and had to hold on to the animals as their throats were slit and the blood would run out and the, the smells of the burning flesh on the altar, they knew how costly, how abhorrent their sin really was. So as we hold this cup, this cup of grape juice, I want you again to remember how much God loved you and me, what, what a great cost he was willing to pay for us as he let his, his lifeblood be spilled out to wash us white as snow the blood of Jesus Christ, drink it in remembrance of him. <laughs> Lord God, we thank you for your great grace. We thank you, Lord, for your great story of redemption and that you let us sometimes see you pull back the curtain just a little bit so that we can see the amazing ways that you're at work. Father, as those who have come to an understanding of your grace and your gift of new life, as those who have been empowered by you, Holy Spirit, who live within us, may we be faithful, especially during this Christmas season as people are dealing with the, the competing messages of what this season is really about. 
Father, would you give us the boldness and the courage to be those who would share the real reason for the season, which is that of your son, Jesus Christ, the baby of Bethlehem who claimed to be the Christ of Calvary, our Savior. So would we go into the world and share the good news of the gospel? Thank you again, Lord, for your great grace and the greatest gift we could ever receive, that of your son. May we share that with others this Christmas season. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.